Well, let's get started, shall we? If you recall, and I know you do, because you all have good memories, I introduced the class with a one-page summary that we emailed to people, describing what the goals were, what we're trying to accomplish. And I thought it might be good just to read it. It's short. And just as you hear me read it, think about how we're doing, how are we addressing these things, and how far have we come? This is how I introduced it. Roughly 70 years ago, there was no such thing as professional Christian counseling or counselors. Today, however, as problems arise, counselors are the obvious and essential first call. This class will examine the beliefs that have molded us into counselor speed dialers. To put it another way, would you choose your pastor, Maslow, Peter, or Dobson to handle a personal crisis? During our time together, some significant questions that we will consider are, do I really understand the power of the gospel and where it's placed me? Who am I in Christ? How should union with Christ impact a view of suffering and pain? Is the Bible really relevant and sufficient for all of today's complexities? After all, the Apostle Peter was a contemporary 2,000 years ago. Can we deny the overwhelming significance of today's scientific advancements and how they have contributed, contributed to our knowledge of self, family, our neighbors, and our bodies? I've been on a journey in my Christian life studying, teaching, and serving in the areas of quote, counseling ministries, this journey has led me to the conviction that the body of Christ has experienced a defining shift by embracing certain beliefs that align to a more secular worldview. These beliefs offer a threat to historical orthodoxy and yet are widely embraced and seldom even discussed. It's my hope that the body of Christ will walk through these issues with me and help provide validation. And I pray that our time together will affirm the wonder and unity we have within the Christian family and that it will bring glory glory to God. And then I said thank you for joining me on this journey. So I'll say thank you again for joining me on this journey. But it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we're... We're talking about family issues, aren't we? We're talking about body of Christ, evangelical church, conservative even evangelical church. As as Jeff very kindly and wisely mentioned at the end of class last week, he said, Jim, boy, it's hard because we're talking about believers and we, we really want to bring truth. We don't want to be critical. We don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be combative. And that's not easy because I know when, you know, about once a year, Karen tells me I've done something wrong. And I don't like it. Okay, I I need to hear it. I know that. But even as seldom as she may say that to me, it still makes it hard to receive it. And yet part of what we're doing is, is dealing with issues within the family that we should be able to talk about with one another. And I will say this, that almost without exception, when I've had 30 minutes 
or even an hour with even a pastor to deal with these things, it's it's been wonderful. It's not always that good with those immersed in the counseling world who are making money at it or who are teaching at it. I understand that. I mean, as you know, this journey of mine that I've just taken me a long time to get where I am today, and I'm still on the way. And and you'll see that even as we finish up over the next three weeks. Well, those of you who have survived the first nine weeks, I'm not going to review it all, but just to give you a context of where we are tonight, we're unfolding five beliefs, total foundation beliefs, with some sub-beliefs that I won't outline tonight. But tonight we're going to unveil belief four. So we've taken nine weeks to do the first three, and you're oh, what you're thinking. Come on, Jim, you're going to do the next two in three weeks? Yes. I wish I had more time in a way, but in a way I'm glad I don't because I need to step back and all of us need to step back. And I think it's enough to cover what we're trying to accomplish, particularly as these beliefs touch on who we call and why. Because I'm building a roadmap here. It's not a highway. It's fully paved in every area. Hopefully you and others in the body of Christ will help me make this smoother. And But I think we needed a framework for discussion. And I, and I hope by the time this is done in a couple of weeks, you're going to say, I have in my mind now how to minister to other people, how they can minister to me. And I know enough about the counseling community to be discerning about material and what's going on there. So we spent some time unfolding the difference between Christian counseling and biblical counseling. And within the Christian counseling, the integrationist movement, we said there are two big issues. The issue of what is truth, all truth is God's truth, and then the issue of trichotomy, this body, soul, and spirit, and how that's segmented, and how the psychologists, the counseling, the Christian counseling integrationists love that because it lets them go into the emotional side and say, well, that's us. You guys handle the spiritual side. We're going to take care of the emotions, because if we don't believe in trichotomy, how else would we understand emotions? And that's what we do as psychologists. We study that. Now, that's simplistic. Many, many integrationists have a more holistic view of the inner man, but that's consistent with the integrationist position. And the biblical counselors don't hold to that, but they have their own issues. One of them is the word counsel, as we talked about last week. What does the biblical word counsel mean biblically? And I love the response. Those of you with the handout, I mean, you said it was, this was helpful. This puts some meat on the bones around a word that's not being used right. And that is a problem, isn't it? We, language and how we use terms is a problem. And then the other issue had to do with being competent, being able to do counseling, being able to do one anothering, because we don't feel competent to do it. So as we build our path, I gave you my Christian with a tie story, because that was my competency. I wore a tie, and it was a nice tie. You know, this counseling world, I, I called Dallas Seminary today because I was just curious how big counseling had become at DTS. 
and so I talked to somebody in the admissions department. The THM is still the number one degree program at DTS. 450-some students enrolled with 1,100 students right now at DTS. Would you be surprised if I told you the counseling is number two? It is. And it's the fastest growing, the admissions person said. There's currently at Dallas Seminary 150 students at the Dallas campus pursuing a counseling master's or whatever they call it. And the Houston campus that has been opened begged them for the counseling program. And they're already in a short amount of time, 50 students enrolled in the counseling department at the Houston branch of DTS. This is big business. Big business. And so we looked at our dependence on some of these term, this terminology. And, and when we open the door to this knowledge that can come from the counseling world of, that's not general revelation, we, we start struggling with these words of what it means to admonish and what it means to be competent and able and what it means to counsel. And, and we started to talk about some of the other issues that, that play out with this. Issues of money and reason and logic and professionalism and medications. And then we finished with a little bit more of a detailed description of J. Adams, we believe, misinterpretation, sadly so, of Romans 15:14, where he took the word admonish, nathetio, and he decided to call that counsel. And he, in essence, gave birth to the biblical counseling movement within the bigger counseling arena. So any questions on that? That's about a five-minute quick snapshot. And I know you get tired of me reviewing that. So, open your Bibles to Colossians 1.27. So, you guys are good. Howard Hendricks, observation, Bible study students. Give me some observations on this verse. Don't be shy. Observations are not right or wrong. Remember that. They're just, well, they might be wrong. <laughs> Who's it addressed to? Who's he talking to? Gentiles? The church? Okay, so this is, this is to Christians. What does, what does it mean to have what, is the, what does the in you mean in this verse? The hope of glory in you. Oh, the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry. Well, the Holy Spirit is the hope of glory in us. But the you, let me ask you this, is the you singular or plural? Christ in you. How have you always understood this verse? Have you understood it as singular, haven't you? But it's not singular, is it? You look all around the context of this verse, it's plural. It's a y'all. How many of you have heard this preached where that's plural? Not many. Sometimes. Good students. I'm not. I've never preached on it. I'm not. Would. How about this next one? Good example. Philippians 1.6. How many of you have ever heard this preached as Plural. For I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will 
perfected until the day of Christ Jesus. That's always taught as a singular verse. You look at the context, you can go look at Philippians 1. Open your Bibles and look at it. Read the first few verses of Philippians 1 and then go after that and see who it's addressed to. All the saints. For their participation in the gospel. For I'm confident of this, that that this good work in you, this participation in the gospel of you, plural, will perfect it. Now, why is it that we're so prone, and we are, to see verses like this as singular? Verses, now, is that, I can hear Bernie, it's a true statement, you're right. Is that what you're thinking? Yes, it is both. But it's never taught both. Because this is a true statement for us being in Christ. And this is a true statement for us being in Christ individually. But it's not taught that way. Typically, if it were taught both, I'm okay with that. But it's usually not. And when I say I'm okay with that, I'm only okay with that because it's true. But the text itself is plural for a reason. And so, if it were taught plural to begin with, that would be more consistent with what the text is. So, why is that? The professor, some of you know who Jeff Bingham is. He's no longer at Dallas Seminary. But Jeff Bingham, Steve and I have had the blessing of meeting with him a few times to talk about this one another stuff because he he has his pulse on the subject matter that we're going to talk about tonight. And he he had a, a lecture. Um, I'm going to come back to that. He had a lecture on how our culture and times have severely impacted our ability to look at our past and value all believers from Adam forward. And he talked about these three terms, rationalism, presentism, and individualism. And I'm not going to spend but about five minutes, but this is very important to understand as it relates to our rationalism. Started by a Frenchman. Anybody know the name? Back in the 1800s. Descartes. I I think, therefore I am. Is that it? Yes, I think, therefore I am. So, Descartes' rationalism was a response to empiricism. Empiricism dominated at the time what you could touch, feel, smell, your senses. That was what everybody made decisions on. Empirical evidence. And he thought, you know, you just can't do that. There's got to be something else. So he came up with rationalism, and rationalism was was where reason became the driving force. What was reasonable, not necessarily what was empirically you know, studied and understood. So reason became the dominant the dominant um, thought. So what would that mean to Christians? That reason would dominate over what? Scripture, exactly right, over revelation and over faith. So the new priest, 
the scientist, right? Because we can trust that. Lab reports come back, reasonable. And indeed, our faith must be reasonable too, because if it doesn't make sense to me, or if it doesn't make me happy, if it doesn't, then, you know, if it's not reasonable. And how, where in today's Christian evangelical community do we see reason dominate a lot? Phil Borat talked about it in his class some. The area of apologetics. We feel like we have to answer everybody's questions on every issue from an apologetic viewpoint in order to defend the faith. We think we can reason somebody into, you know, somebody that's dead can be reasoned into life. Now, we do want to have a defense of the gospel, but you see how reason can get in the way and dominate. And, of course, we saw that in the garden, so we shouldn't be too surprised to see it creep up. Presentism. Presentism is the present is always best. Another term for presentism would be contemporary. So where do we see that in the evangelical church? Contemporary service versus the traditional service. Contemporary worship versus traditional worship. Contemporary music versus traditional music. And presentism, you know, is not just music. It's the books today are the best books. The the seminaries today are the best seminaries. The music today is the best music. What's going on today is best. And we see that, well, we see that cause great problems in churches. And Watermark's a wonderful church, but it's started at Northwest Bible, and the real root of Watermark becoming a new venture was Contemporary service here, traditional service there, and the church couldn't quite get it all figured out. So that one of them went one way and one of them stayed there. And good churches, community Bibles one, they, they have one service. They have new music with older music together. They, they blend both. That's biblical. But when the past and future are subordinate to the present, what does that say about the work of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That was then, this is now. It's like the Holy Spirit is a time-bounded person, isn't it? He wasn't, must not have been active back then. But boy, he's really active now. And of course, these, you know, these rationalism, presentism, and in a minute as we're talking about individualism, you know, the antidote for this disease, I think Bingham called these the unholy trinity of diseases, okay? But the antidote for rationalism isn't, isn't reason, it's what? It's faith. In fact, it's even believing in something that doesn't make sense. And I've been with, you know, one another counseling kind of I use that in quotes because you know I have to do that now. I've been doing personal ministry, ministry as a, as a brother in Christ. I can't even say it now. I'm still getting out of the counseling world. But I spent time with a lot of believers and they'll say, well, I know that's in the Bible. It just doesn't make sense to me. And Renee's run into situations and she 
you know, dating world of all of that where people, it's just, well, I just, that doesn't make sense to me. I, maybe that's in the Bible, but it's just not reasonable. We face that all the time. The antidote for presentism, this disease is, is a healthy understanding of the past and the future, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit's at work then and he'll be work now and he's going to be at work in the future. Yes. Yeah. Novelty. Well, novelty sells. Novelty attracts and publishes. So, that's an excellent point. No, that, that that's excellent, Jeff. Right. Well, and and indeed, that's where we're going tonight. So that's a great introduction to that, and. Certainly, there's a lot of text to support that. Well, that's great. So, individualism, this disease of individualism, a little bit more subtle within the Christian church because because we've all been taught things like we need to have our own quiet time. I mean, there's lots of individual references in Scripture. We are individually saved. We're not corporately saved. We're individually, we individually repent of sin. We individually walk with our Lord. We are individually, indeed, in Christ, secure in Him. Yes, we have that personal relationship with Him. It, He knows our names. There's, there's, there, there's a, He knows every breath we're going to breathe. So there's all kinds of individualistic Biblical things that we can talk about. We're individually sanctified. However, the the problem that we have is that the, the ramifications of individualism within the church community is is immense. People don't go to church a lot of times because they have their personal walk with the Lord. And the impact of individualism as it impacts the Christian community and who we call when we need help, which I hear over and over. Look, I don't have anybody I know well enough that I would ever talk to anybody about the issues that I'm struggling with. Heard that multiple times. I mean, I'd like to talk to somebody about it, but I don't really know who to talk to. I mean, I've got my walk. I go to church, right? Who do we, who do we go to? Some churches are better, Watermark and the village and the churches who built community. So let's, with, with this little background in mind, let me go back and, you know, we're, as we, as we unfold number four, keep that framework in mind of what Bingham talked about as we look at foundation belief number four. And then we're going to spend the rest of tonight and we're going to spend next week unfolding this. Christians are competent and complete, able to bear one another's burdens as designed by the effective power of the communal life of the body of Christ. As the body of Christ, our certification is the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit as we gather together to be edified and blessed by each other's spiritual gifts. Our adoption 
is our degree and gives us the mind of Christ. This placement in the family of God is eschatological in nature and preeminent over all other relationships under the sun. Now, there's a lot in this. But the first thing I want you to notice, this is for my wife, is that we changed the font. (laughs) Can you read it better, Karen? The Lord may be the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but our fonts are not. And we reserve the right to change. I told you we may change this. Who knows what else we may change? Actually, there's a couple words on the first three foundation points that we probably will change. So, I might send you those or not. I don't know, because if I send them, then I might change it again. Okay, there's a lot here. So, let's take a minute and talk about it, shall we? If you'll notice in the first three foundations, points, we mentioned a Christian is. A Christian is. So now we're talking about Christians. I'm moving to plural for a reason. When we talk about competency, what we're saying is our certification, being certified, being equipped. That's a big word. Are we equipped? I need to be equipped. I will tell you that I've heard multiple times, even from people here, a couple of you here, but um, in fact, a couple of you here aren't here tonight. So you all are safe. You're all off the hook. But early in the class, I was asked, are we ever going to learn how to do one anothering? I mean, Jim, this is interesting stuff. I know we're learning about life and light and sight and revelation, and we're kind of finally got to learn about it, but we're going to learn how to do it. Just give me the Cliff Notes version of how do we care for one another. Just tell me how to do it. Well, guess what? Surprise. You are equipped right now. And how are you equipped? Well, you're equipped by design, not by education, not by academics, not by a degree, not by being certified. You are equipped by the very design of the body of Christ. And it's a little more than that, because we're saying that this certification to us, if you want to understand, you want to put a diploma on your wall and say, I mean, how do I know that I'm certified. Well, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit is a testimony to that. You all know that. You get with other Christians and you start talking about God's Word, you are sharpened, aren't you? You are edified. You're built up. I've been edified just talking about this stuff with you. I hope it's been mutual. We we come together and we each have gifts and we bring the very life Right? Of Christ in us and the light of Christ in us. That's the Holy Spirit. And, and we bring revelation, special revelation to each other. We bring that life we can encourage. And so this effective power is done by the Holy Spirit in us. And it's, keep this in mind, we'll come back to this idea a little bit when we get to our week 12. Yes, Jeff. 
Yes. Yeah, amen. Amen. That they lived out the reality of this. And they, and they rejoiced in doing it. Because they, they had a sense of community that wasn't a building. It wasn't hearing a sermon. You know, Bingham talks about four different types of community that he went on in his message and this individualism community that isn't really community at all. I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm myself. I'm good. Okay. I'm going to heaven. You guys do your own thing. But the more common are, are something called tribalism, he called it, where you have these independent little groups like your family. Okay. It could be a, a small men's group. And you are good. Okay, you got your you got your buddies, you got your family. Homeschool movement are like many tribes at times within church arenas. You know they they are they are their own world, and they have no they have they they don't think about their community relative to the larger scope of what's going on. Um, the the third area he called was was um, uh, concertism. Going to a, a concert. I'm going to go hear Matt Chandler because, man, that guy's great. And he is. So people flock to hear the preacher because he's great. Oh, Chandler was great. Oh, the worship music was great. I mean, I loved it. You don't have a clue what's going on with the person sitting beside you. But, man, that was great worship. You ha- You don't know anybody in the church. Nobody's actually said much to you. I'm not talking about the village here. I've shifted because people know people at the village. But that happens. It's common. It's like going to a concert. You're entertained. Or in the good Bible churches, you go hear the sermon. You go to the 11 o'clock service. You come in. You listen. You check the box. You leave. You don't say hi to anybody. Or maybe you casually say hello to somebody. You don't engage with anybody because you've done your church. You've been there. And that's good. You have no clue what you're missing, those believers. You're missing a lot, which we're going to talk about over the next uh, couple of weeks. So, being edified and blessed. Both those points are important. We'll come back to that later in chapter 12, or our 12th lesson. And our adoption. Being adopted into the family, that's our degree. That's our graduation degree. You know, we want to, what's the evidence of it? The certification. Our adoption, these are just different terms, but it's, it's our degree. And what does it give us? Does it give us a diploma? No, even better. It gives us the mind of Christ. Wow. Now we have something that we can minister to one another with. Now, when we're calling on people or we're being called upon, we have believers, brothers and sisters with the very mind of Christ ministering to us. And we want that. We need that. And this placement in the family of God is eschatological in nature and preeminent over all other relationships under the sun. I bet I had you okay here. I bet that was okay, wasn't it? And then I got here and you're going, Jim, what are you talking about? So what do you think I'm talking about? Hmm? Eternity. Eternity. So what's another word for church other than the eternal church. Family 
family of God. But but how have you have you all heard the um, you might have heard have you heard the term of universal church? Okay, but that sometimes can be confusing because it could be universalism. So the other term that's used a lot in theology is the invisible church. You heard that term? So what does that mean? Yeah, all believers from all times, past, present, and future. So that's what I mean basically by eschatological. It it it, it has a future bearing as well as looking back. It it we we are united in a church, in a family that has no that spans time and space. Isn't that beautiful? We are a brother with John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon. Isn't that beautiful? And Fanny Crosby. I mean, I, Fanny Crosby wrote, what, 8,000 hymns? Is she going to be a sweet believer to spend time with? I mean, this, this is our family. We don't think like that. We think of church as visible church, what we can see, the building, the people that we go to right now. But a bigger view of church, a bigger view of our community will help us see all these other relationships under the sun. Yes? Well, in the inheritance of, of it's exactly right, it's right where it started. And as we look, as we see it unfolded, the terminology for the body of Christ throughout Scripture, we, we get wonderful terms, don't we, that are plural in nature. The emphasis on the y'alls in Scripture is what I'm talking about and, and trying to elevate our thinking a little bit more about it. The bride, it's, it's all of us. We're the bride. We're a holy temple being built together where the body so the idea of the body of Christ the idea of of us being grown together it's a great text from Ephesians 2 19 through 22 so look at this not as your individual identity again because I want you to see your identity not as just a believer in Christ let me tell you one of the reasons, one of the things that changed for me in the last year on this journey. Just humbling, difficult journey where I see things and then I go, wait a minute, it's, there's better ways to do it. When I taught this material a year ago, I taught a section on who you are in Christ, your identity in Christ. And there's some good books out there on who you are in Christ. Was in a small Bible study with some guys going through a book, and everything, every title of every chapter of this book said, "I am secure in Christ. I am forgiven in Christ. I, 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 I." The entire book was about me. And then I taught a second lesson on who you are in Christ in the body of Christ. And I think that's wrong. I don't think you can separate them. I think when we do that. We're falling into what Bingham calls this individualism thing again. We're, we're being pushed 
toward such an anchor on just me, and we're so prone that way anyway, aren't we? I mean, everything pushes us that way. And if we can just look at it to where where I am in Christ, in the body of Christ, and that's what you need to see. And it's a great verse for that. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That a beautiful text. That's good identity, isn't it? That's you in something much bigger than you that's going on. Colossians 1-2 That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. That a sweet word picture. Be knit together in love. That's what's going on. God is building his church. He's he is when when, when the bride is complete, the trumpet will sound. I mean, we, we don't need to worry about that. And until it's done, he's still building the church. And this temple that's being built, by the way, we dwell in it with him. A holy dwelling. And we're with him right now, secure. And this new DNA, I, I like it. It's something we, we, by the blood of Christ, we have in essence spiritually his blood flowing through us, don't we? His very life. We have the spiritual DNA that we share with one another. And that's a better way of looking at your identity than just, I've got Christ's blood in me. Well, it's, it's a body. Now, how important is the body? Well, it's very important. So let's, Give Dr. Bingham another look at something that he unfolded in one of his lessons. So let's look at these verses. Let's look at these verses in light again of who we call. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So that's in Ephesians 4.17. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Ephesians 4.20 And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, what in the world, in light of... You'll open your Bibles to Ephesians. What does it mean to put on the new self? Those of you who know me wondered how long it would take me to get to Ephesians. Trust me, it's been on my heart the entire class. And there's more to come. So we're we're in the section of chapter 4. We're talking about the Christian's walk, aren't we? 
And we're talking about the body of Christ. If you were to go in chapter 4, for example, verse 4, chapter 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through you all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to them. So we have this language, don't we, of, of the body of Christ. Not individual language. So what in the world do we mean when we hit verse 24 and we are to put on the new self? What does that mean? Any guesses? Oh, that's good, Robert. I, I'm just, I'm liking you. Now, can we support that biblically, though? How can we support that biblically? Because that's right. It doesn't mean put on the new self individually. You already know that because I've been leading you that way tonight. But Dr. Bingham, that word for new man or new self is used one other time in Ephesians. So let's go see where it is. Back in Ephesians 2. So we could start with, he's talking about the Gentiles. You see that in verse 11. Therefore remember, Ephesians 2, chapter, or verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, goes on. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Here we come. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man. Jews and Gentiles united together in what? The church. The church. Now, keep that in mind. Same word. It's only used. So go back to Ephesians 4 and see how this makes sense. Now, is it true that we are new individuals? Yes. That we are new identity in Christ as an absolutely to really to Bernie's point, this text could certainly mean both. But since we've already had it introduced in chapter 2, meaning the church, let's see if it makes sense and put on our new identity in the body. Put on the body of Christ. Now look how it unfolds it. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you to one another. For we are members of one another. And be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He goes on about how we speak and and how we ultimately finishing in verse 32. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The Christian walk is desperately dependent on one another. This is not an option. This is not, our, our spiritual battle is not got up and 
bear up and man up and, and walk the life. It's put each other on. Because we need each other. Desperately we need each other. Yes, we desperately need Christ. But we bring Christ to one another, don't we? So, if that's the case, how does this new man that we're talking about, this body of Christ that we put on, how how does that impact our relationships? Christ in you, the hope of glory. What what does that mean to marriage and work relationships, child raising, dating? You know, most counseling issues are right here in marriage. That's number one. I mean, the number of marriage counselors are far greater than anybody else out there. And I know this doesn't cover all the pain and trials of suffering, of grief. I, well, I understand that. These are just examples. So, those of you who have been in the class, because one of the classes I taught took some material, and then we walked through Ephesians together, sort of looking at some of the one anothering, how we might use Ephesians. That's actually how I spend a lot of time when I sit down with a young man and he wants some help in an area and he's struggling in an area. I typically go to Ephesians. I, I just It covers most of the issues and I, it's a place for me to get him in the Word. So, doesn't have to be Ephesians because yes, Romans is inspired too and Galatians. I mean, there's a lot of... It is all special revelation. But why in Ephesians, what what would we notice about Ephesians based on what we've studied tonight so far and and what we're talking about with these relationships? What would you what would be an observation, a good Bible study observation? Amen. So Ephesians emphasizes all of that. And where does it emphasize that primarily? What chapters? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it emphasizes it in four. So where does it talk about these things? Where does it start talking about these other relationships? Starts in five, doesn't it? Five and six. Now, isn't that interesting? So, when we talk about the preeminence of the body of Christ, it's what I mean by that is it is preeminent over all of these other relationships. These are all under the sun relationships, aren't they? There is no marriage in heaven. These are temporal relationships. Yeah, it's a beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. There's a different marriage, isn't there? Thank you, Jeff. An eternal, forever marriage. Now, what, from a practical standpoint, how does this work its way out? How does, how do we, in the midst of, of marriage pain and difficulties, child-raising difficulties, behavioral difficulties from your kids, work conflicts. How do we deal with those relative to 
the knowledge of the preeminence of the body of Christ. Well, I want you to think about that between now and next week. I want you to think about how that plays itself out in, in very biblical terms when, in terms of who you're calling and why you're calling people. I would suggest, for example, on marriage, that I, I've never talked to one marriage counselor biblical, Christian, or secular, but certainly not secular, but a biblical or Christian counselor who has who has said, look, regardless of what happens between you and your wife, you do understand that this, Christ in you, this bigger thing that's going on for the body of Christ is far more important and far more preeminent then whether your relationship ever gets fixed, and it may not. Can you live with that, Mr. or Mrs.? Or can you live with the fact that perhaps for the glory of God, for purposes we don't know, that this temporal relationship that's broken may not get resolved, and that your persevering in it might do more for His glory it might do more for the progress of the gospel, for the body of Christ, than your separating, getting out of it, solving the pain, resolving the conflict, and moving on. And the reason they don't say that is it doesn't get somebody to come back the next week. You know, it just doesn't sell. You know, you don't give that advice for $100 an hour. You just don't do that because... Because, you, you know, that's not, that's not getting to the root cause. That's not getting to the issue and spending some time bringing all those things in. It's not dealing with all those needs. You know, it's, it's I think, dealing with the reality of, of what goes on. And we know, all of you know, people who have persevered in difficult times for the sake of the glory of God and the progress of the gospel, even when, even when they had lots of people telling them, you deserve to be happy. You deserve not to be doing this. And that's regrettable. Yes. Mm. Amen. But it's just a struggle. I mean, that's because we're tugged by all these things we've talked about. And, and we that's why we need one another. I mean, we, this is my final slide tonight. And, you know, just your problems are our problems. There's no such thing as private sin in the body of Christ. There just isn't. You may think it's private because you think nobody knows. But it's not. It, it impacts the body. Everything is about the body. I mean, I can be reason I can be rational with you and say, okay, well, what, what do you mean? I mean, are you saying that the fact that I play golf three times a week is sinful? Are you saying that that's sinful? Well, I can't say that. But I'm just saying, okay, if you're okay with that, and that's fine, but, you know, that's you know, six times three, that's 18 hours a week, plus a bunch of other time. I mean, 
aren't there some needs out there? I mean, is there a better use of your time than that? I mean, only before the Lord you can make those decisions, right? But we don't even think like that. We're not thinking community-wise. Well, I don't think anything wrong. We're just thinking moral, ethical. We're behaving okay. And without a bigger view of the body of Christ and how desperately we need one another and how dependent we are on one another and how wonderfully equipped by the Holy Spirit we are to serve one another, we will go our own selfish, independent ways. And we miss things. Does that make sense? So, tonight we talked about the preeminence of this universal, invisible church. The greatness of it. And how we're already, we are right now as believers, ready, should be ready. We're designed to care. Next week, we'll spend a little more time talking about what that looks like with spiritual gifts. Because there's some in the one anothering, and there's some interesting ramifications to that. We'll spend a little more time in Ephesians. We could spend 12 weeks on the stuff for next week. It's wonderful. But, but again, this is a roadmap, a framework to just start thinking and stimulating your thinking. And as I mentioned, there's some wonderful material called Equipped to Counsel that some of you have been through, that has some good how-to-do stuff, if you want how-to-do stuff. The, why is this class this way? Because in that material is a lot of this stuff, and you have to be discerning to, to be able to see what's good and what's not so good. Well, this is a class designed to help us not to be equipped. Surprise, you already are. Let me close with prayer. Father, thank you for a glorious design. Not just the glorious design for us individually. I, holding my littlest granddaughter this week, just amazed at little bitty fingernails and eyelashes. Just the perfection, the beautiful perfection of, of a little three-week-old little girl. And that beauty is what the body of Christ is. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful bride soon to be presented, as Jeff said, at a at a marriage feast, a celebration that's that dwarfs anything on earth. And we rejoice in marriages, we rejoice in marriage ceremonies. They're beautiful pictures of of our union and a marriage to come. And Father, I pray that uh, our marriages, our relationships with children and grandchildren and with co-workers and and with uh, just all of the struggles that we may have in those relationships, that that we would, by your Spirit, that you would direct those in and help us um, to to minister to one another in those. But Father, may may we keep in mind a much glory, much more glorious union that we have, a, a preeminent union that is your family this new family that we've been adopted into. And so we praise you for that. And bless us for the rest of the evening. In Jesus' name, amen.